Listening Dog Media. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. DJ! Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins and this is How to DJ. How to DJ. I could just use six proper inputs and if I just bypass the recording process and go straight to my dad's tape deck, Oh, right, quickly, whip something up. Really important. These people who turn up at gigs and you, you hear them playing the same set, I think they should be arrested and led away. DJing is a live environment. It's happening here and now. A podcast exploring the life stories, techniques, minds and experiences of much-loved DJs where I ask them to pick five questions from a box of 45. And for this episode, I'm joined by one of the UK's best-loved dance acts. There are moments where, where you feel that sort of, you know, kind of this gets a bit transcendent you feel that real connection with the crowd you just feel like you know what you should be playing and it's reflecting back from them a duo who launched their own festival tickets were selling out they sold out in a day one of the biggest names in dance music andy cato and tom finley from groove armada welcome to how to dj thank, thank you very you. much tom before heading into the box of questions hmm. where did you two first meet i think that we first met in my Attic in your bedroom, in but my not bedroom, in that way. yeah, not in that way. In yeah. uh, where I grew, where I grew up in Cambridge. So my my one of my best friends growing up is a, a, a woman called Joe, who is now Andy's wife. You were what university with Joe, I guess, at that time. Yeah. And she said, "I know this guy called Andy, um, and I always loved music and played in funk bands and stuff as a kid. And you two should meet." That was it. Yeah, that it's all true. He came into my attic. I think I was kind of slightly prostate and sort of having some mid-afternoon fun and some description. He walked in and started playing my bass guitar better than I'd ever played it, which is a bit annoying. And uh, the rest is sort of history, yeah. It is. Is that how you remember it, Andy? Yeah, no, I, re- I remember because, you know, I was from up north. And then, yeah, Joe, then girlfriend, now wife, she was she a was Cambridge girl. And there was a real sort of scene um, in Cambridge, you know, DJ Harvey. There's a big sort of funk and disco and soul scene there. And, and it was just a very, very different world to Barnsley, you know. So I remember going into his bedroom just thinking, God, this is the coolest bedroom ever. You know, it's like wall-to-wall records, bass guitar, you know, slight whiff of smoke in the air and, you know, getting away with murder. Mum and dad, the long way downstairs, you know, it seemed pretty cool to me. Were you into music as a kid then, Tom? Yeah, I mean, totally. I kind of always loved it. I mean, I never played it as seriously as Andy. So I was always a sort of, uh, you know, an enthusiastic amateur, played sort of trumpet and I played bass guitar and a couple of funk bands and things like that. But um, yeah, I guess I really started sort of seriously collecting about 15, 16, you know, and then started DJing around that sort of time. So I think Cambridge is sort of weird because 
there's a sort of Essexy kind of soul scene. There was a guy called Fat Max who used to run Fat Max's records by the station. And he was a real kind of Northern Soul Weekender collector. And so we all used to go there at weekends. And then obviously we're quite near London. So we used to get the test broadcast from Kiss in the early days. And that kind of, I was like listening to Giles Peterson and all that time where, you know, the Soul to Soul record came out about that kind of era. And so that was very much the sound that I was into, you know, and I didn't really start seriously DJing until I became a student in Manchester. That's when I got my first proper paid gigs, you know. What about you, Andy, as a kid? Well, I had the sort of, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a bit of a sea change in that I grew up playing blues because my dad was, well, he's a teacher, but he's a far better trombone player than he ever gave himself credit for. And so he wanted someone to accompany him on the piano. So from the moment I could kind of sit at the piano, I was, you know, being taught how to play the blues. So um, I got really into that. I started playing the trombone because my dad did. And I wanted to be a jazz player. And I got this real vivid memory of being on a tour in the, in the States when I was probably about 16, standing outside a jazz club in this sort of low-lit street at two or three in the morning with my trombone case. And I never forgot it for some reason, but it's just sort of thinking that with this trombone case, I can go anywhere in the world and I can make a living. And sort of the liberty of that was like amazing, you know. Wow. What a romantic um, image. Yeah, no, but, it, but it's always stuck with me. There are those little snapshots that stick with you, you know. That was a real moment. But then I went to um, hear Sasha DJing and my cousin was setting up the DIY sound system in Nottingham at the time. So I was exposed to house music on multiple fronts and I was like, right, I want some of that. So um, yeah, then just from there, everything changed. How did that journey start then? Well, I just, well, I had a really memorable night at one of my cousin's squat parties and a really, really memorable night listening to Sasha in um, in Stoke. And after that, I was just, uh, I've just got to, you know, I just, yeah, I was tuning into all the part radio stations. Like, I've just got to be part of this thing. And there was this kid in uh, in Wakefield who, whose dad was uh, quite loaded because they had a snooker club and he built him a studio in the basement, uh, but he didn't know how to play the piano as I could play the piano. So I had this thing where I'd like knock out the sort of house piano wrist for him by day. And then he'd leave me to it in the studio at night. And so I ended up making a couple of tunes. And then I used my jazz money because I was getting paid to play in working men's clubs and stuff to print up some white labels and picked them up in London and drove up the M1, dropping them off at all the record shops. And that meant two things actually. Firstly, I got some white labels out there, but secondly, I exchanged half of them for other other 12 inches in the record shop. So like overnight I had quite a decent house record collection and started DJing. And what were you thinking it was going to turn into? It just wasn't turning, it, would, it, it just was what it was. It was just like, I just wanted to live in this world and there was no like ambition about kind of brand building or, you know what I mean? It's just, it, it was a very different approach to now. I don't think you're not sort of working the socials and trying to get known. It was a, it was a sort of life. And I just wanted to be part of it. You know, that kind of Friday afternoon record shop thing, the weekend, the phone boxes, the free parties. Yeah, it just felt more kind of like, you know, just sort of choosing a, choosing a lifestyle rather than trying to get anywhere. Tom, when did you first DJ? First sort of gigs I remember was, um, was sort of Manchester. I'm trying to remember the name. There was a place called the Ten Bar, which is just, I don't think, I think it might even still be there, but just right in the centre of Manchester. And then my first gig was a night called Head Funk. And I got, and I got paid 100 quid. And the curry. Is, it was just, and a, no, well then I would, yeah, no, that was the one, that was the year before I used to give out a free veg curry for a quid in. That was my first night. And then I got, you get head funk and then yeah, I'd take a hundred quid and I'd take 50 of it and gamble at Stanley's Casino and try and double my money, which it went quite well most of the time. But uh, yeah, but a lot of the time I didn't. Completely self-taught then, yeah. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, it, it's just, uh, I mean, I was firstly really just playing funk 
you know, and so I wasn't really even mixing particularly, you know, that wasn't really the ambition to do that. I think you can, if you're really skillful, you can pull that off and I can do that a bit easier now with the CDJs or you've got the loop functions because obviously with, with funk, you know, the, the beats are moving up and down. That's the whole joy of the music because it's super live, but it makes it an absolute bugger to mix. I think the first time I was just fading stuff in and out, you know, it wasn't really until probably started DJing with Andy, but I said, so you have to actually mix records. So I'm getting there. Uh, when was your first time together? <laughs> well, it's, it's when we got sort of shoot. We were running these parties in, in London, Groove Armada parties. And for, to start with, there were two rooms. And so Tom was doing his funk thing and I was doing a house thing in a, in a separate room. And then it was really by, by dint of the fact that we sort of lost one venue and we ended up with a venue which had just one room where we just had to play together. And so Tom was at this stage much more on the funk and disco thing. I'd been DJing house for years. That was my thing. And uh, there was a slightly sort of uncomfortable meeting in the middle, which just got better and better the more we did it. But really, it was that quirk of the of the lost venue that, that led to us doing this in the first place. What were the parties like? They were pretty electric, actually. I mean, the, the, the um, well, there were, yeah, with one exception that springs to mind immediately. I mean, it was a bit up and down. So I remember the first one where we actually... It was in Mayfair for some mm. God's sake. God knows why. Anyway, it's whatever club we could get hold of. There was this club in Mayfair. Being a promoter, like you know, big salute, high five to promoters. It's the most stressful thing. You know, you put everything on the line and then you just wait. And walking around the corner and seeing that queue outside mm. the club, realizing it was going to be packed, was um, uh, was 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 a real defining moment actually. So we had some real great moments like that. We decided, given the name, that we'd do one on a boat on the on the Thames. So we took our all the money that we'd earned from these early parties to hire this boat, handed over the money in a in a penthouse to this guy who was the boat owner, except there was no boat and it wasn't his penthouse. So that was a backward step. Uh, and then we got absolutely rinsed when we uh, booked Dave Seaman for, for a big night, didn't we? That didn't, didn't go so well at all. So that's why we ended up actually in this one-room basement of a pub when we first first yeah. played together. But that was a really great night yeah. down there. It was good. And then after that, we did, well, you know, we did the first album we did called Northern Star was on a label called Tummy Touch. And then we were doing quite a lot of stuff. It was a, a, a gay pub at the time called The London Apprentice. It's now called The 333. I think it may have just no longer be there, but until quite recently, it was like, it was that real early nascent Shoreditch days, you know, and The 333 was pretty grotty. But that was where playing in the basement there was probably where we started to really... Oh, sort of the craft a bit, the two of us playing together. Had you started to get a name for yourselves, do you think, by that stage? A little bit on that scene. So at Tummy Touch was like a monthly party and we were residents there and we put some tunes out. And I remember, so Andy touched on it earlier, but a guy called Harvey, who was a kind of, a kind of idol of a lot of ours because he was from Cambridge and there was that sense of this guy being from Cambridge, being cool, doing things that we all wanted to do. And I remember him playing a few of the early tracks that we did on that so that was yeah around that sort of time it was starting to get a name but the kind of that from that to us getting a record deal was was very rapid we didn't sort of you know suddenly sort of it was doing out the river basically that changed everything really tell me about the making of out the river tim lee who was promoting the 333 parties tommy touch he, he said uh, go and make some tunes to promote these parties. And for reasons that to me at least are lost in lost in history, we decided to go to a country cottage. And this remained a theme for most of our album writing was going out to the countryside. And I don't know why that started, but anyway, it did. And we were in this uh, cottage in the middle of nowhere and we had super basic setup, like, you know, tiny little sampler, one synth, that was basically it, and an adapt recorder for the, to, you know, to record the, the results. And there was a village shop 
and we were on a kind of Boddington's and Waffles diet. And we went down there for the for the last Boddington's and Waffles instalment, and there was a there was a, a case of CDs on the counter, fifty piece CDs, at the top of which was Sounds of the Fifties America or something like that. So I just threw it in with the Boddington's, thinking there might be a sample on there somewhere. And on there was a track by Patty Page called Old Cape Cod which is where the Out the River Vogue comes from. But in the first instance, I was listening to that thinking, these chords are lovely, you know, so I worked out the chords, got them playing on the synth. And when I got back, I had a jazz gig because um, I was still, that's how I was making my living back then. So I had the trombone with me to practice. So I was just playing it over the top and just playing all the licks that my dad used to play off these old spiritual songs. One of which was called Out the River, which is where we got the title from, even though she's talking about the seaside. But um, so I was playing these things and, and then we were like, actually, this sounds really nice. But we had no microphone. But for the technically minded, they'll know that microphones and speakers are basically the same thing. And so if you flip the wires around on the back of a speaker, you can make a microphone. So we did that on the sort of cottage hi-fi stereo speakers and recorded the trombone that way, thinking, like, let's just not forget the tune. But actually it gave it a kind of old Louis Armstrong-y kind mm -hmm. of sound. So then it was like, actually, this is, this is sounding great. And the last bit was... Um, an absolutely random bit of brass band that you can kind of hear to sort of, sort of balance us out the, the vocals. So the whole thing came together in, in, in a few hours. But mm -hmm. when it was finished, there was definitely a sense that it was a good one. Because when we drove back to London, for some reason we were in two cars, God knows why. But I remember just for that one tune, we made two copies of it, two separate DAT tapes of it. And we both took a copy in case anything happened to one of us <laughs> on the way back. That's yeah. really sweet. Mm. At this point, did you want to be DJs or or a band? I think it was just again, you know, like that that was so. At that point, it was again just just amazing to make a record. I was just so thrilled with that thing. Like Tim had said, "Go and do it." We did that in a week. I think I just assumed that that would mean that we would do more parties with Tummy Touch, and that would be great. You know, that's we've never been. I mean, we've got more strategic as we got older. We recognised the need to be back in those early days. Everything was kind of accidental, and then yeah, Rob the Bank picked up on at the river, but he was writing a column for, I think it was called Music Magazine at the time. And then it was just really rapid. They loved that. Yeah, Zoe Ball played it. Well, that was about, then we got the deal with Jive. And then we then sent back into the studio to write Vertigo. Was getting signed at a big moment, you know, was it a life-changing moment, Andy? Yeah, well, I mean, it was, uh, I, yeah, because I was at working uh, with the, these other lads that I was sharing a flat with in Clapham, on, living on Cato Road, hence the name because it's not my actual name. Uh, and we had a band called the Beat Foundation. And in the middle of all this, like we'd been slogging around in the post office van, like driving to Ibiza, doing kind of live house music and, and Lakota in Bristol and all these places. And we finally got a deal with, with Virgin, like about a fortnight before or something. And then there was this sort of uh, really awkward conversation with my flatmates, say, uh, look, you know, this Groove Armada thing, it's got real momentum. I'm just going to have to roll with it. And so there was a very short period of time, I don't know if it's weeks or months, to be honest, where uh, the Virgin, we went to the Virgin offices for the first time, which felt like this massive deal. Because remember, this is like before you could post anything online. So record offices and A&R offices, like the gatekeepers to the whole world, you know. So when you actually get ushered in one and asked to go in one, rather than just knocking on the door, which I spent 15 years doing before that, it's a really, really big thing. And in a very short space of time, Pete Tong played a B Foundation record on the on the Essential Selection on Friday night, which was just epic, an epic moment in my life, hearing Pete Tong introduce that. Then there was the Virgin thing, and then we were being touted around, weren't we? Like mm. going to all these, being entertained and wined and dined <laughs> by all these uh, A&R yeah. men around London. It just felt like just pretty surreal, really. Yeah. yeah, what was that like that time? 
Yeah, I mean, like I said, it's very surreal. I mean, for me, yeah, it was, was very, very odd. There was nothing that I'd sort of planned. And um, I think probably a bit nerve-wracking, you know, and like, you know, that sort of suddenly things start to get quite real and the numbers, you know, I mean, probably not a lot of money in, in, in today's, but at that time it felt like a life-changing thing for me, you know, that suddenly this is something that... I'd never, I'd never, kind of always thought I'd like to do, but I never seriously entertained the idea. This is how I can make a living, and um, yeah, it was good. And actually, we sort of went to a lot of the bigger places and ended up signing for a really odd little label called Jive, which was signed, we were basically on the same label as Britney Spears and Steps. <laughs> <laughs> but we signed for this guy called Scott, who we really liked, and we felt kind of familiar with him. The other places were a bit overwhelming, so we went there, and and yeah, and that was probably the right decision because he was very supportive and. To be fair, like I think A and R people get, uh, get tend to get a bit of a bad name, but particularly in the early days, he was good because he drove us to be more commercial than we were minded to be. And obviously, at the time that felt difficult, but I think with the benefit of hindsight, it was the right thing. So we delivered an album which was, you know, we were listening to like Air and all those early records, and that was the thing we were doing. And then he sent us back into the studio, and we ended up writing "I See You, Baby," and if ever at the same, which yeah. is probably a good idea. So Northern Star was the debut. That was 1998. First mm. go 1999, and "I See You, Baby" was the kind of monster hit on yeah. that album. Uh, was that back at the Withnail and I Cottage? That yeah. You did well, that? actually, um, that was back from that, Ibiza. Yeah, that was a standalone thing because we, as far as we could tell, we finished the, the album. Scott had said, "You need some hits." He was just totally blunt about it. He just needs some hits, guys. And we'd, we'd spent a week in the, in the Manumission Motel in Ibiza, which was an extraordinary experience. And every night in the basement, they had this mini club, which is probably the best club in the world. And it was hosted by Grandma Funk, who was this very imposing lady who sort of wore a, a nightdress and sort of shouted at everyone in, in, a, in, in a mostly fun way. Uh, and, um, and so we got her over to um, this industrial unit in Tottenham where my studio, if you can give it that name, was. And we just sort of fed her Red Stripe. And she uh, she chatted away for hours and hours and hours. And then once she'd left, got the scissors out. And uh, amongst it all were the, was I See You, and then Baby, and then Shaking, and then That Arse, but <laughs> about, you know, 45 minutes apart between yeah. each word. That's an incredible story. Yeah, so that was... Uh, that was a useful afternoon in mm. terms of our DJing career. You were such a big deal at that time. That was when you really cut through, obviously. Mm. And then you decided to launch your own festival. Yeah. Uh, so Lovebox was 2002? Yeah, 2002, 2003, I think. Yeah, yeah. Why did you want to launch a festival? Um, sort of because we could. It was just a little opportunity came up. That was all it was. There was no real plans. I mean, we weirdly, we were big then. And then Lovebox was an album that we really liked but it was a challenging record and was we were sort of i mean there were some great songs and that the things i'm really proud of but we we had a difficult time in a record label around that time and just feeling a bit uh, a bit detached and then a friend of ours got in touch and said that clapham council clapham council had yeah got space on clapham common did you want to do a one-day festival and we just yeah we went for it and it was really surprising i think again one of those ones a bit like nerve-wracking moment but i remember the tickets were selling out they sold out in a day for this i must have been what 12 15,000 capacity it was us norman jay on his bike he was to play before us we had tim lovely like a little thing and that was that was sort of the launch of it and that was in clapham common and then that grew and grew like all things you know there's probably a slightly not to say perfectionist but both of us are kind of you know we like drilling into detail and making the best of things when we can and that, that we became slightly obsessive about that festival for a few years. But it was a really nice distraction, I think, at the time from things that weren't 
going exactly as we wanted to in the industry. It was really fun. And and the moments, I mean, there's moments I remember when we moved to Victoria Park and we had a weekend where we had like Roxy music and Dizzy and Grace Jones. And we got behind, we had the kind of first big gay day in London on a Sunday, which I'm enormously proud of. And I'm not saying we in any way broke them, but played a big part in bringing on people like Horsemeat Disco for like, you know, main stage sets. So having more sort of pride about what we did with that event. I remember seeing Florence the Machine in Victoria Park at a love box in, I guess, what, late noughties? Yeah. I, I guess it, it would have been. That festival had such a buzz about it. Mm-hmm. It was a kind of, there was something really joyous about love box. Mm. Did you love it, Andy? Yeah, I did. I mean, it was. Uh, I mean, behind the scenes, inevitably, if you come because it's basically us and, uh, and a few mates, and you, what became, I think, the sort of the biggest festival ever in London. Wasn't mm, it? I think at the, time, at the yeah. time, yeah. And so you can imagine, like the behind the scene dramas. Like, how, where do we get toilets from? Like, how much fencing yeah. do we need? Mm. No live nation police, to you know? deal with all that. You no, know, and not actually not only yeah, and actually a lot of people as we got more successful, uh, got an interest in making a life awkward. You yeah. know, in terms of booking acts and all, and all this kind of thing, so that it was it was absolutely on the brink at all times, mm. and then but then you get these moments where it just all comes together, and when we sort of walked on to headline, what yeah. an absolutely wicked day! But and that atmosphere was was special because everyone coming on board was either a friend or a friend of a friend, and so everyone doing every little stage was just into it, you know. Mm. Uh, and um, I think we probably did that on about as big a scale as you can. Yeah. Who have been your favourite headliners? At uh, Lovebox. Well, that, I think that weekend that Tom said, that was the, mm. that was the legend. I mean, the Stein the Family Stone only lasted 10 minutes, but it was a good 10 minutes. <laughs> it was a good, definitely <laughs> worth it, yeah. Ambitions fulfilled. You've released nine albums and GA25, a 25th anniversary compilation box set, which has a sort of sense of finality about that. You've said you're not going to play live anymore. You've said it... Twice before, I think. Why why do you keep saying it? Yeah, I mean, it's because probably because it it takes so much out of you, you know. And so I think you get to that point where you do feel a bit broken, you know, after tour. It's such a, it's an amazing thing to do, and you know, and and the adrenaline is incredible. And standing side of stage with a group of people you really love, and being on the road with people you really love is incredibly special. But particularly for us, you know, there were there were times. I mean, now it's pretty smooth, but there were times I remember kind of back in about 2010, 2011, doing the, what's that place called? The Boiler Room, wasn't it? It was this yeah. famous Australian, Big Day Out was called. And, and the, the, this Boiler Room was the sort of the, the venue. It was a bit like doing the other stage at Glastonbury, like the Kems did it, you know, and it was like a, an honour to head like that thing. And I remember being on that tour and a certain Calvin Harris was, was supporting us then when he was doing that kind of funk thing. But he was good, you know, he was really good. And then we suddenly, he would play before us and we think, shit, we need to really up our game here. And we got better and we actually, day to day, we were improving the set. Uh, how? Tell me, explain that. How we improved it. Yeah. Or just by just going, you know, because we're running as we're running backing tracks and then we've got the loads of live music on top. So just massively amping up the backing tracks, kind of throwing loads and bells and whistles and you're trying to match that sort of Calvin Harris kind of energy. But you're doing that and you're sort of doing a gig and you're going on show and you're sitting together in a hotel room, rewriting the set and then going out there the next day, bricking it thinking is this going to work and then it does work but just 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 going through that day after day and then also dealing with every other people's stuff and everyone saying they're not getting paid enough or whatever's going on you're trying to do all that stuff too it's it's draining you know like and it was amazing experience that tour one of my favorite tours ever but it you come back from it and you're spent you know yeah how how were the, the 
the last set of live shows for you, Andy? They, they were brilliant, actually. I mean, I have to say, um, because, you know, I've got other stuff going on at the minute with farming and whatnot. When, when it came around, I was like, oh, no. It's just, <laughs> I just actually sort of got to, go, you got to leave home for a fortnight. It's quite chaotic. It's quite a lot of logistical issues. And I absolutely loved it. I loved it because, well, you know, what Tom was referring to there, I mean, it was a perfect blend in that the people were on the road with were amazing people and it was the, exactly the right kind of absolute commitment to try and make the gig as good as you can and absolute commitment to enjoying every night that you're on the road. And it was a pretty unique group of people in, in that regard. But what, what that meant was that for years and years and years, that like we'd do these gigs and, you know, big gigs and it was going off, you know, but uh, afterwards it'd be like, we can get 10 more percent out of that one and 15 more percent out of that one, just always pushing it, pushing it, pushing it to the point where the set just got really, really good. Like as a combination of, I don't say that very often about our stuff, mm. but as a combination of like live music and electronics, pretty unique and mm. super fat, you know, and I think actually probably the thing that we're proudest of and the thing will be fondly, most fondly remembered for from the people that saw it, I think. So by the time we arrived in, in Australia and New Zealand for these last ones, the set was just in a great spot. So total confidence that it's as it should be. And we just deliver that stuff well, you know, and it's just so, so nice actually to be on stage once you've done all the hard yards, it's going off. And every night is a countdown to the last one, gives it, a, you know, an added kind of free song, you know, and it was, it was special. You are going to carry on DJing, aren't you? Mm. That will never go away, I guess. But you do have lives outside, and you've just mentioned farming. You moved to France for a while, didn't you? But you're back here farming now, aren't you? I'm back here, yeah. I'm a tenant of the National Trust near Swindon. Never thought I'd end up down there. But uh, yeah, so I'm farming. I mean, there's, it's a long old story, but but the the, the, the project is called Wild Farmed. There's uh, about 60 other farmers involved now. And, and you can find it at your local Waitrose and local Marks and Spencers if you're interested. <laughs> <laughs> how did you learn how to be a farmer? Reading, actually. Yeah, it was just that. I, I read this article. It talked about the environmental consequences of food production. It had this line at the end, if you don't like the system, don't depend on it. So this all began with me thinking, right, I'm going to grow my own food. And it was just, just books. I mean, there's plenty of them out there. Reading and reading and watching a few people and then getting a lot of things wrong, like a lot of things wrong. Nature is very, very humbling and, it, and, and the timescales are very different. So you, you go from sitting in a studio thinking, I'm going to try a thousand bass sounds in two minutes to thinking, I'm going to try this way of you know, growing wheat or whatever. And I'll find out in a year's time if in this year's weather conditions it, it might work or it might not work. I guess it's really wholesome and um, satisfying too. It, it, I mean, the actual act of farming is 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 a profound thing, uh, and, and anyone who sort of came to the farm and and and, and got involved in, to whatever level, I think ultimately that that connection to growing your own food and 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 ultimately these natural systems that we're part of that's in all of us, despite all our modernity and our and our phones and our uh, urban environments. I think that that pull is there as soon as you open the door. I think what we're trying to do at the moment is change the food system. And, uh, and that's really, really hard. So actually, uh, it's quite nice just to get behind the decks now and again and just not try and change the food system for a minute. Stop thinking. <laughs> yeah. Tom, and you're a trained psychotherapist, right? That's right, yeah. Yeah. How come? When we did around sort of black light, hence the sort of name around 2010, 2011, I went through a kind of quite an extended period of depression, which I didn't even know what it was. I wasn't really, I and mean, we're much better about talking about mental health now, and there's been a real progress on that, and it's something which means it makes it easier for me to talk about that now. But certainly at the time, it was a hard thing for me to acknowledge. 
Um, and eventually I got help and I had some cognitive behavioral therapy, so CBT on the NHS, which wasn't particularly well delivered. I, I now know having delivered it myself, but it, it opened up my eyes to different ways of thinking and behaving, which is the cognitive behavioral bit. And, and so I, yeah, just similar to Andy, and then started on a bit of a journey of just reading and reading. And then, I don't know, I think I did a psychology degree and then, cause, and then, yeah, and then just, then I was trained to be a, to, to a CBC therapist. So that took me about five, six years. And I now, I did two years in NHS during the pandemic and I now work at King's College London with students, which is great. And do they know who you are? They don't know. I mean, like a couple of times I've been, been recognised by people, like right, often right at the end of therapy. Like, so you do it and they must have been waiting to say it. And I finally go, oh, I just wanted to do that. Black Light's my favourite ever record ever. But most of the time, no, you know. And I, and I think in a way that's probably a good thing because, I mean, CBT is one of the ones where you do often bring a bit of your own experiences into therapy as, as a therapist. But I think probably my experience in dance music wouldn't have been that helpful in terms of telling them how to live. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's it generally... I kind of like the anonymity of it. I like, you know, it's the opposite of the kind of, not that I have a, I don't think I've got a massive ego really, but like, you know, obviously when you're out in dance, that gets blown up a bit. And this is the opposite of that. And it's a nice balance, you know, just to be thinking entirely about somebody else and their experiences and how to help them, you know. What about recognition for you, Andy, in the farming fraternity? For a while, to be totally honest with you, I felt a bit of um, conflict between the two things because I won't go to all the whys and wherefores about the wild farm thing. Now people can look it up if they're interested in it. But it's quite a big project. Quite a lot of people backed us quite seriously to deliver this thing because if we get this right, it can have a really sort of transformational impact on, on the future. And so I was felt that weight of responsibility and continue to feel that weight of responsibility quite keenly. And so I was, for a while, I was a bit nervous that if people who'd backed it saw the groove of Marla popping up on posters all over the place that, you know, even though I'm doing this like every hour, waking and sleeping hour, <laughs> I couldn't give it more of my, you know, of, of my sort of attention and effort really. But nevertheless, I was a bit worried about that. And then I've realised latterly over the past few months, maybe a year, that it's just a fantastic way to democratise this message. Because as a society, we're mainly urban dwellers, we're completely divorced from the natural systems that sustain us. And actually, you know, this message that if you're bothered about health, biodiversity, climate change, it all can only be solved in how we grow our food. This is, I'm not, I don't sort of, you know, put projections up behind us, but just being in this world and having these opportunities like this to talk to different audiences is, is great. And on the other side of the coin, farmers, really, they should be rock stars. They really should be society's rock stars. And, um, and in trying to sort of shift the paradigm with them, there's, a, there's this great uh, festival called Groundswell, which is farmers in this kind of vein, regenerative agriculture, they call it. And on the Wednesday night, they asked me to DJ and I refused because I pictured the kind of the worst wedding DJ set where you just, you know, trying to pick an impossible line between all these different generations. Eventually, as I generally do, I caved in and you check it out with the footage from that Wednesday night, it was like, Space Terrace in 1989, you know, it was going absolutely insane. So that's going down, I think, is the moment that, that farming took a step to be to being the rock and roll subject that it should be. DJ, out to DJ. Hey, it's Kaylee. 
Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Time, guys, for the first of your five picks from 45 in this record box here at my side. All the questions are on 45, Steve, so I'll tip into the box. You say when, I'll pull one out. Okay. okay. Now. Tom, yeah. is there a secret to being a great DJ? Everyone used to tell me to play for the girls. That's the one. Like, and I think there's something in that. But I really think fundamentally the most important thing is tune selection. More than anything, like you can get, you can be super, super technical, but the really great DJs I've heard are always ones that know to pick the right tune at the right moment. So knowing your music and getting that selection right, yeah. Andy? Yeah, I think the, um, the way to be a great DJ, at least as I understand a great DJ, which is different perhaps to, to the sort of theatre of, of the way some of it's gone these days, but is to um, spend a lot of time on the dance floor. And so you just really understand what it feels like to be there and what you'd want to happen next if, if you were there. Mm-hmm. Who are your DJ icons, Tom? I guess, I mean, there's, there's lots of people. I mean, as a kid growing up, there was the guys called the Idiot Boys that I love, which are kind of Cambridge DJs that I'm a big fan of. I mean, Francois K probably played some of the sort of best sets that I've seen, you know, like kind of watching Francois Vorkin. I remember in one time in, in, that, Norway. in Norway, like Amazing. in this Christian stat in this festival where it doesn't get dark. It was like four in the morning watching him playing off that tapes. I don't know how he's mixing on that tapes, but yeah. he was. Uh, that, that would be Kerry Chandler, I think is brilliant, you know, like a really, you no know, real musician, but, but a, a great selector. I mean, there's a few that really stand out for me. Um, and I, I used to like a lot of hip hop DJs growing up. So people like Jazzy Jeff, as it was just a great party DJ, a guy called Stretch Armstrong, who was a New York DJ that I love. So I kind of, so I started by that funk hip hop thing. So those are probably, yeah, my, some of my, my favorites. Andy, similar? Well, Francois K, definitely. And uh, Sasha for me. Um, he just, you know, sort of, that was the, the soundtrack to an absolutely transformational period in my life. And, and my, my cousin, uh, Diggs, he used to DJ um, as a partnership, Diggs and Walsh is part of these DIY sound systems. And they were, Pretty unique in bringing in that kind of New York sort of garage infused house thing, which they always used to refer to as being quick but deep. And it was mm. quick but deep. And it, but it was a sound that's always stayed with me. And actually, it's very, very similar to where people like Jamie Jones have come back to now, you know. Mm. And so, uh, that, yeah, I think just because those sets were at a period of life where, you know, everything seems possible and everything generally happens, it's, mm. uh, it's always going to stay with me. Back into the box for your second question. Say when? Okay, to do it. When? Which do you prefer, making music or playing it? It's a tricky one, that. Mm. Yeah. That's a really tricky one. I might, do I have to give a definitive answer? <laughs> you have to answer. <laughs> because the reason why it's tricky is because there's a lot of time in the studio which is just hard yards, but there are also moments where that thing drops into place and you're like, ah, oh, this is a tune now. And when you get those moments and it's just the two of us and it's generally quite late at night and there's no interruptions, it's pure focus and sort of being present, I suppose, in modern parlance. And that thing has just come in and you turn it up as loud as you can and you find the corner of the room where the bass is heaviest and you listen to it. Those moments are absolute gold dust. Which of of your tunes has been the hardest to to get finished? Superstarling. Mm -hmm. Why? 
because it was just one of those, well, like, like all tunes, I suppose, you know, you've got the ingredients and you know that those ingredients organized in the right way have got real potential. And for some reason that was just really, it was a really, it was stubborn. Just like we could hear like bass lines hooky, there's a wicked vocal, that whole combination of brass and house is a bit different and there's all that was working. But it was actually just very kind of counterintuitive that pushing the bass line back to come in halfway through the what was meant to be the verse was absolutely transformational. Mm. It took us about seven months to work that out. Oh, wow. We just kept doing version after version, DJing with it. It was a nice tune, but it wasn't going off. Mm. And when we moved that bass line back and we played it at the Big Beach Boutique in Brighton, mm. uh, it went off. Who made the change? I think it might have just happened by accident because sometimes you just grab the whole screen and it moves back eight bars. I think it yeah, might have been we were just faffing about and then finally, but, 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 but the moment we both heard it, we were like, that's it. It's so random though. So you're just muting things on the, on the desk because yeah. in the old days, you know, the actual missing desk. So you've got the bass channel muted and you might have clicked it off and yeah, it came yeah. in. Like, oh, Jesus. Actually, that's what we need to do. You know? <laughs> Did Superstyling start life in the cottage as well? And that started in fabric. Oh, it started in fabric. Then, then, then there was, yeah. a, then there was a, uh, a, yeah, a, a very strange cottage with a with a thousand-year-old cat and all sorts of other shit. <laughs> yeah, we lived there for about 18 months. That's another story. Tom, yeah. what about you, making or playing? I think in the early days, like when life was less complicated, you know, we both didn't have other careers and families and all that sort of stuff, then, you know, being together and making music was just an amazing experience, you know, and just having that time, like... Sometimes, like Andy said, frustrating and hard work, but, you know, just having it six months to just do that, to do something and f focus yourself on something was a really beautiful thing. I think now it's, I think I probably prefer playing music because it's just hard to find that focused time in our lives, you know. And so there's always that sort of slight moment of dread when you go in. But Andy's right, when there are moments of pure joy, when you get to that point, maybe you, you're listening back to those things at the end of the day, it can be that nothing's going to beat that. Nothing's going to beat making a tune that you love. Nothing's going to beat, you know, when we did At The River or, or Superstyling, you know, these things are going to go out in the world and they're going to change your life, you know. Do you ever think about the incredible friendship that you have and, you know, what life would have been like without each other? It's kind of impossible to imagine. <laughs> exactly, it? I mean, we've, yeah. been, we've been together longer than we've been apart. So yeah, It's um, quite mad, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think we probably crossed that threshold last yeah. year. So, uh it's just kind of impossible. I do think that we've been very blessed in that regard in that, I mean, you know, I'm sure there are, but I don't know of many sort of artistic professional partnerships which where you combine making things work with just really making the best of all the amazing things mm. that life have thrown at us. And there's been plenty of them. Yeah. <laughs> Back into the box. Question three coming up. Okay. When? I guess this kind of follows what you've just talked about. Yeah. What would you like your legacy to be, Tom? Legacy, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think it's like Andy said, I think that the things that we're probably going to be the proudest of, uh, and, and it's, it, you know, it's kind of fleeting, but those, just to get some of the great gigs we did, you know, and the memories you made, that's the thing I'm proudest of, I think. What we did with, with as like Andy says, bringing together kind of live music, musicianship and beats, it's a really difficult skill and something we had to really teach ourselves. No one was out there really doing it. I mean, Faithless were sort of doing something similar and we were lucky to support them and we learn a bit from them and you take a bit from other people about. But we really, what we did, we put together and it's a lot of accumulated knowledge. And then to do that and then to do the gigs like, you know, the other stage at Glastonbury or Centennial Park in Australia, to play those shows, you know, 
that would be the thing that, that people have great memories of that. You know, the John Peel stage when we did Black Light, it's one of my favorite gigs. In fact, that's still out there on some great, beautifully done BBC podcast is lovely not um, uh, broadcast it's great to have those moments still there so i think that's the stuff that when you know and if i want to say if i ever get around to having grandchildren that's probably what i show them you know well no i don't get when my kids get around to giving me grandchildren that's <laughs> what i'm not <laughs> andy yeah I, I think you know it's it, it is really amazing like when you're out and about and people come up to you and said you know i remember this night that night i met my husband or wife at this thing or that thing or this was the best night of my life or whatever and you know it's just an amazing thing and you know whether that's people who you know got into farming ideas or the music ideas ultimately just having a positive impact on someone's life you know and i don't think it really matters the scale of it you know it might you know if someone remember someone because they were really feeling shit and they came and brought them a cup of tea outside, you know, but ultimately at the end of the day, you know, when, when all of your, your empire building inevitably comes crashing down, those moments of human kindness and human interaction are the only thing that's left really. Mm -hmm. Question four. Okay. Go on then. Andy, how does being a DJ make you feel? It's a fantastic thing, but it's also, I mean, yeah, without one sort of, yeah, overdo it, because ultimately, as Jamie, who's just outside, would say, we're, we're throwing parties, not saving lives. But <laughs> I think we've always seen it also as a bit of a responsibility. We do think about it hard, you know, and now we go into clubs and listen to the sound system before going into the DJ booth, because often the two, what people are hearing is very different from what you're hearing, because you've got your own monitors and stuff like that. Really try and get the mood of the place and really try and judge it right. Because, you know, most people who are nightclubbing, they spend a lot of their lives doing jobs that they probably don't want to do. And they've been saving up for this moment and it's up to you to make it wicked, you know. And so I think that's not something that should be ignored. And we, we do take that bit of it quite seriously. But then when you are in the, in the booth and you've got the measure of it and it's going and you know that you've got two hours left and you've got more than enough because you've got you're on, on the tip that it needs to be on. And you've got a couple of cold lagers kicking around and like, you know, it's just a fantastic thing. I mean, I can see why everyone mm. wants to do it. <laughs> everyone does want to do it more than ever. <laughs> yeah, I think. Yeah. What about you, Tom? Yeah, I mean, totally. Yeah. It's uh no, it's a really joyous thing to like Andy said, when 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 it's there are moments where where you feel that sort of, you know, kind of this gets a bit transcendent, you feel that real connection with the crowd. You just feel like you know what you should be playing and it's reflecting back from them. And they're some of the best nights of my life, you know, and it's, it's great. And sometimes it's a slog, you know, and sometimes, but even then I think you can draw on those experiences and those moments and think, okay, well that kind of worked last time. So that should work this time. So they, yeah, no, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a joyous thing to do. And, um, you know, sometimes we do the weekends like this weekend, we're doing four gigs, it can be a bit draining, but when it's good and it's one of the best things we could ever do, I'm, I'm no, over the moon to be doing it as a living. It's absurd, really, but I'm happy. <laughs> <laughs> Your final question for the box goes. Okay, let's go. Okay, let's do it. All right. How much planning goes into your sets, Tom? Um, yeah, I mean, quite a bit of planning. I mean, there's... You know, there's so much music out there. So there's just a huge filtering process that goes on constantly all week. You know, like I get probably get sent 500 tunes a week, I'm guessing, you know, like I'm sure you get, you get the same and, and then some, you know. So it's about filtering through that stuff and then doing a lot of edits, you know, like sometimes a record, we do a lot of that stuff on the go. I think then we tend to sort of, we don't like have any planning meetings between me and Annie or anything. We just find our way, but it, it tends to be the start of the summer. It's a bit loose. And then we start to kind of 
learn each other's tunes a bit and certain things come together so it's definitely a kind of the planning comes from just doing the gigs i mean we don't rehearse djing but it comes from being out there and remembering things that work together having a kind of a nice feel for for the tunes we both have and i know andy's records relatively well now and that kind of really helps you know you i can be thinking if i do this i know a record of his it's going to work and we're talking in that three four tunes ahead when things are good that's what you're thinking if we can go four or five tunes ahead, then you know that you're really on top of things. You've got a real plan about where this is going to go, you know. And when it's not going well, you're just firefighting, you're just chucking everything at it. But when it's good, then, then you can do a lot of planning. Andy, you always start, don't you? How come? I don't know how it happened. I mean, uh, I just... Probably stuck in the dressing room or in the bar. Yeah, <laughs> probably, yeah. Yeah, I mean, because we've got the setup now, so Tom's got his computer as well, so that takes a bit of faffing around to get that plugged in. So there's a degree of practicality in the whole thing, I think. But yeah, for whatever reason, but I, I generally start. Yeah, I think we get the planning really is 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 that that we do a lot of talking, you know, and um, uh, and so um, sometimes when the, the the cameras are beaming us up onto the big screens mm. uh, rather than sort of hand clapping and cheerleading, we're sort of locked in the conference. But, yeah, I've seen it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there is always um, along the way plenty of smiles between you. Yeah, yeah. What's your favourite opener? What what do you fall back on when when you what's a banker? It depends what you're trying to do with your opener. Today there's a there's a there's a, a tune by Crazy P called Heartbreaker, and it's a it's a lovely sort of afternoon summer sort of disco track, re-edited. As Tom was saying almost every tune that we play we've re-edited in one form or another. Again, same principle as a live band, just trying to maximise impact and uh, and also make some deeper tunes playable by giving them a bit more energy. And also that's the five records ahead thing because you can you can make records that were unplayable, playable by setting them up right, but you can also make absolute bangers in terms of a piece of shit if you set them up badly, you know. So it's in, it's the context is everything. So, yeah, so so that one is um, a good example. Today we're going on after, after a funk DJ and then we're going to go into over a kind of house curve and then back to Giles Peterson. So... That's radically different to what's going to be happening at two o'clock in the morning in Litchfield. Mm. Yeah. yeah, guys, I never thought I'd be spending an afternoon in a Holiday Inn Express in Stockport with <laughs> Groove Armada. <laughs> Thanks so much for being here. I have one last question for you. And I should point out that the reason is that you're playing at the Moving Festival just up the road here in Stockport in a bit. One final question for you. It's the end of the world and Groove Armada are playing the last three songs on earth. Oof. Andy, what should those three songs be? Wow, you would have to ask me first, wouldn't you? Well, I would, working back, I would definitely end with um, Young Hearts Run Free. It's mm. a spectacularly inappropriate lyric given the context, but it's so irresistibly joyous that I think everyone would just have to go with that. I mean, I'll go for a, an appropriately titled one, which is my favourite slightly unknown Prince song, which is called It's Going to Be Lonely, because that was soon quite good. <laughs> but it's just, it's, it's from that album, it's got, I think it might be his maybe his second ever record but it's just a ballad of his that I just adore I mean it probably wouldn't be playing it a movie but it's just one of my favourite records of all time so it's going to be lonely I think it's an all surefire winner yeah have you got one more well we should probably we should probably throw Play in a, a, a housey one for the, yeah. for, for the, for the last dance I, mean, I think actually it's better it's, be superstar I mean we'd be in trouble if we didn't I don't think we should <laughs> we've heard that enough times okay we've got true. one tune <laughs> in fact I think there's, there's a tune that um, we've been playing this summer which is really tweaky and like an Really banging, yeah. like really banging, but and it's kind of like frenzied last danceness. So that yeah. tune called You OK would yeah. be quite fun, wouldn't it? That would be filthy. Really good yeah. way to go out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, All right, what a way to go. Thank you so much, Andy and Tom Groove Armada. Thank you. Thanks a lot. How to DJ. How to DJ.
how to DJ. Thanks for listening. Please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcast from. <laughs>